Thank you, Simon. Do see, uh, sit down. I came across a bit loud there. Tone me down. Um, I was really interested in watching Daniel do the baptism. I thought I might uh, preach this morning using an iPad and put it on a little wooden table next to a bowl of water and have a little child next to me. And then I decided probably not. I'll just use my paper notes because I could see that child. I could see Annie kicking the iPod into the into the bowl of water and da- Daniel being left stranded. So this is our, I think it's our final one in the summer series where our vicar, Tom, who's away this week up in uh, somewhere, Lancashire, I think. Are you going to tone me down? Uh, there we go. Yeah, I know you don't want to listen to me, Simon, but you're going to have to listen anyway. Um, Tom's up in, I think it's Lancashire. Anyway, he's on holiday for the week. So he set up a, a series in the summer where the preachers could, could pick a passage that had spoken to them personally and just open it up. And we had five of these. Uh, last week we had Paul, who's our paramedic, talking about suffering. Tom himself spoke. His wife, Katie, spoke about doubt. Which was, all of these have been really, really helpful, I think. Um, and I'm going to speak this morning about failure. Now, when uh, preachers are given the opportunity to speak about it, whatever they want to speak about, often, and I'm certainly uh, of this ilk, we pick up a lovely passage of a famous biblical hero, we explore what happened, uh, we see him emerging or her emerging from the disasters around them, uh, pressing on and doing wonderful things. And, uh, you know, that's great. And I, I did that at the first of these series when I spoke about Joshua, some of you may remember. Um, and... You know, in our own lives, when we look back in, on our lives, we tend to look back on the good times, the successes, when things went well. But the reality, of course, is that in our lives, we hit times of difficulty. Uh, failures hit, storms hit, as they have in various ways, actually, for Christine and I and our family over this year and indeed in other years. And whilst in one sense it's only natural to not dwell on the failures, on the, on the difficult times of our lives. They are nonetheless a reality, and that's why I've decided to pick this passage, a very f- uh, famous passage, many of you will know it very well, a passage that's spoken to me deeply, which is the failure of Peter, and then, of course, his restoration. Dark times and failure stalk the pages of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. Many, if not all of the men in the Bible, And women in the Bible seem to have had some sort of experience with failure or brokenness. Adam and Eve, of course, kicked it all off. Jacob was a serial liar. Jonah disobeyed God's calling and headed off in exactly the opposite direction to which God was telling him to go. Moses was a murderer. Aaron allowed the people to rebel and run wild, build an idol in the shape of a golden calf, make sacrifices to it, and then engage in a drunken orgy. Then there's King David, who rather than lead his army into battle, gets Joab to do do the job whilst he, David, stays in Jerusalem to commit adultery with a married woman called Bathsheba. The storm hits when he discovers that she's pregnant. His response is to put together a cold-hearted scheme involving her husband, a soldier called Uriah who is ordered back from the military campaign and encouraged to go home and spend the night with his wife. Spend what we call in the British Army today, have a period of rest and relaxation to wash his feet uh, with his wife. Uh, Uriah, displaying all the aspects of leadership that David fails to display, sleeps on the palace floor, refuses to go home and spend time with his family because all of his mates are still at the front and they can't do the same. So David throws a drinking party. He gets Uriah drunk, but Uriah still refuses to go home. So David arranges for Uriah to be left stranded on the battlefield, isolated from the rest of the army, and to be killed. 
adultery and murder, a pretty toxic combination. And then, of course, there's Peter. Always named first in any list of the apostles, his boisterous, impetuous enthusiasm, his good intentions and self-confidence run through the Gospels and the early chapters of the book of Acts. But Peter constantly makes mistakes, getting things wrong at crucial moments in his life. A plain-speaking, rough, tough fisherman from the Lake of Galilee, he was the first disciple recruited by Jesus, along with his brother Andrew, and with James and John, he formed the inner circle of the three who were selected to accompany Jesus at critical times in his ministry. Peter witnessed both Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead and Lazarus being raised from the dead. He made the famous declaration that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, when they were together on the mountain at the transfiguration that Tom talked about three weeks ago. He walked on water, if only for a short time, when Jesus called him out of a boat. And when many of the other disciples up sticks and leave Jesus, Peter declares that for him at least, there is nowhere else to go. He is loyal. He is staying. He is with Jesus. And yet, and yet, it is Peter who in the midst of the storm of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion famously denies that he doesn't even know Jesus. The denial is in every one of the four Gospels, which is very unusual. Quite a lot of the events surrounding Jesus' life are in two of the Gospels. Some are in three, but it's very rare to have something appear in all four of them. Living through the agony of Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter seems initially determined to stay close as Jesus is dragged to the high priest's courtyard for the trial. But when challenged by those in the crowd that he knows Jesus, he denies everything. It's a devastating failure. And in three of the Gospels, we're told that he retreats back outside of the courtyard and weeps bitterly. So what we're going to do is listen to that story being read to us by Anne, the initial part of it, from Matthew's Gospel. And then we're going to watch a short clip from the DVD of the film that many of you will have seen that was released some time ago called The Passion of the Christ. So Anne, over to you. This is from St. Matthew, chapter 26, and um, it's two parts, 31 to 35, and then 69 to 75. Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And then from verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. 
After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a cock crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. It's not difficult to know what's going on in Peter's head. These are traumatic and difficult times, and he's not in control of them. We feel, I think, most vulnerable when we're not in control of what's going on around us. He's frightened. He's no doubt scared of what's happening to Jesus, and he's certainly scared stiff of himself being hauled away as he is confronted. The brutal crucifixion, and if you haven't watched The Passion of the Christ recently, I recommend doing so. As I was preparing for this sermon, I happened to go into, I often do a charity shop to buy some books, and I saw the DVD, and I picked it, and I watched it about ten days ago, and I was struck by the power of the scourging of Jesus, his body being broken, which we spoke about, talk about in the communion service, and so on. It's well worth seeing again. It brings with it the fear and confusion that Peter feels. He hides himself away in the locked room with the other disciples. He finds it all too difficult to get his mind around. So his reaction, as so often for all of us when things go wrong, is to retreat. And Peter says to the other disciples, I'm going fishing. So he goes back to fishing on Lake Galilee. Now, in today's world, failure is generally not tolerated. If Peter had failed in any other context, he would probably have been left to rot with his fishing. In our secular material world, failure is all too often the end of the road. 
But in God's world, failure is not just tolerated, it's used as an opportunity to grow. It's the start of something new. Throughout the Bible, broken hearts and minds are remolded, restored, and drawn back into the fray. And perhaps the greatest example of of this is, of course, Peter's restoration. For the story doesn't finish with him sitting in a fishing boat, having been abandoned. He may have retreated there, but Jesus comes to find him. Peter goes, or Jesus goes back to the seashore where he first met Peter, to the sea where Peter had retreated to nurse his wounds, hide his embarrassment, deal with his despondency, and then he meets Jesus again. And back to you. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me, he said. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old... You'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I wonder what Peter expected when he saw Jesus on the seashore. I'd forgotten actually that the Uh, stained glass window behind me depicts this scene and you remember before the piece that Anne read to us that Peter and the others are fishing and one of the other disciples sees Jesus on the seashore and says it's the Lord and Peter we're told gathers up his cloak around him jumps into the sea and rushes to the seashore I would have thought that he probably would have wanted to hide maybe in the back of the boat thinking that Jesus had come to rebuke him to demand some answers as to why it had all gone wrong, to tell Peter that it was all over. He could never be trusted or accepted again. But none of those things happen. Jesus is preparing breakfast, serving as usual, the Son of God serving a bunch of failures. And he simply asks a series of questions, aimed not at raking up the past, but at confirming exposing Peter's heart. The reason in the Gospels we're told that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart first and only then to love him with our soul and mind and strength is that everything begins with our hearts. God's view of us begins with a view of our hearts. And if our hearts are in the right place, if our heart's desire is to serve Christ, then the storms and the wreckage of failure can come to new life, a restored life. As Isaiah famously says, the Lord can replace the years that the locusts 
have eaten away. The potter can reshape us. And Peter, like Moses and like David, is clearly a man after God's own heart. Difficult, though it is sometimes, to believe it. Peter, do you love me? You know I love you, says Peter. You know my heart. You know I love you. And Jesus does indeed know it. So he tells Peter to feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. In other words, Peter, the original mission still applies. And you, Peter, are not being dumped. You are being restored. There is work to be done. And you are just the man to do it. And remember the final words? Follow me. At the very beginning, when Peter was first called by Jesus, along with, with Andrew, they were casting their nets into the Lake of Galilee. And Jesus calls them with those very same words. Come, he says, follow me. And then he adds, I will make you fishers of men. And he does. Peter goes back into battle. He takes on the Jewish authorities. He leads the Jerusalem church. He preaches the good news. It was to be far from easy. And as we heard Jesus say to him, in the end, Peter would be martyred, dying for his faith. But Jesus transforms Peter's failure into a success that literally changes the world. So what does that mean for us? How does that apply? As we grew up, I reckon all of us will have had plans, hopes and dreams for our lives. But all too often, what looked like outstanding decisions at first, all too easily turned sour amidst the storms. Relationships fail, careers stall. Life is tough when failure hits us. As I said earlier, I've had my fair share. But for a friend of mine, events just seemed to overtake him. His business collapsed, his wife left him, his daughter died, all in the space of just three months. In trying to live with those failures, depression, not surprisingly, hit him hard. When we come face to face with our failures, our first reaction may be to try to avoid that reality. We may try to shrug it off or turn in on ourselves or retreat and go back to our comfort zone to go fishing, to go sailing. Or maybe we kick back and go on the attack to defend and justify our actions, seek revenge, blame others, just like Aaron did when he was challenged by Moses and was brought face to face with the reality and the enormity of what he'd done. Not my fault, said Aaron. It's your fault. You went up the mountain. You disappeared. I didn't know where you were. You've been gone for ages. Don't blame me. Blame yourself. Blame God. Maybe you're living in the midst of a storm now or living with the consequences of a failure, hiding away, pretending that everything is fine when you know in your heart that it isn't. That needn't be the end of the story. There's a choice. We don't have to stay locked in. We can move on. Christ's message is that whatever life throws at us, however much of a failure we may feel, we can move on, as Peter did, to great things. God looks through the storms and beyond failure to the potential that lies ahead for all of us. For those of us who are prepared to face up to our failures and move beyond the brokenness, there is a promise of a rebuilding process. We can retreat or pretend things are fine, or we can turn 
and run to Jesus. Declare our love for him. Say to him, please, please recreate. Please transform. Please renew. Take this clay and remold it. The Bible talks of the hardened heart of the Egyptian Pharaoh, the cold heart of the people of Israel, the penetrated heart of Judas. But it also speaks of broken hearts, clean hearts, undivided hearts, contrite hearts, new hearts. Having seemingly got away with everything, David tried to get on with his life. But then a year or so later, Nathan comes along and tells him a story and reveals the truth of what David had got up to. In his brokenness, David is confronted with his failure. And David acknowledges the truth. He prays for a contrite heart, for a contrite spirit. He seeks a clean heart, a fresh start, a new hope. And there is genuine repentance. And he goes on to write some of the best psalms in the book of Psalms, like Psalm 51, the psalm of renewal. Restoration is complete. Which is why David could go on to say to his son Solomon, the baby born to him in Bathsheba after the child of their adulterous relationship dies. And you, my son Solomon, acknowledge the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches, reaches into every heart and understands every motive behind the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. David's failure brings about the death of a brave soldier and a young baby. The adultery, like all adultery, brings the death of relationships and untold hurt and harm, as does every other type of addiction and betrayal. Envy, malice, theft, greed, the gods of selfishness and convenience, all carry costs. David faces up to that reality and is restored. Pilate washes his hands of the whole business of Christ's trial and crucifixion and tries to put it behind him and move on. Judas's answer is to commit suicide. What's our answer in dealing with the storms and the failures in our lives? Life is tough. And occasionally it leaves us with scars. That's the reality. But scars can be very powerful. They speak of our history, a history that shaped us. Scars heal, and scar tissue is often stronger than it ever was before. We may walk with a limp, but walk on, we can. My friend's answer was to write a book about depression and set up a charity to help those suffering with it, transforming the lives of many. What could it be for you? Let me finish with this. Old-style navigation at sea consisted of using clear and well-defined points of reference, fixed stars, a lighthouse or headland from which bearings could be taken and a course steered. It was no good taking bearings from moving objects like clouds because clouds are vaporous and they come and they go. Navigating our way through the voyage of life is rather like that. When the storms hit and we fail either ourselves or others, we need fixed points from which to take our bearings and regain our course. Many today cling to the moving clouds 
of a secular, atheist, materialistic faith, the latest political correctness or fad. And when failure strikes, they're left marooned. But when we Christians are buffeted by life's storms, we need only to remember that the attributes of God are fixed points by which we can navigate. His love, his faithfulness, his grace, his forgiveness never change. The reason we can trust his word is because his nature never changes. He was what he was, he is what he is, and he always will be. As the writer of the book of Hebrews says, he is an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. The poet John Greenleaf Whittius once said, Here in this maddening maze of things, when tossed by storm and flood, to one fixed ground my spirit clings. I know that God is good. Looking back through the chaos and the failures of post-war Iraq, sitting next to my grandson Daniel's bedside back in April, not knowing whether he was going to live or die, coping with many other storms and failures in my life, it hasn't been easy. And it won't be easy for you. I'm sure it hasn't been, and in the future there will be difficult times. But in trying to hold firm, in trying to cling to Christ's promises, I've always found that God is indeed good. Are you troubled right now? Are you afraid or confused, weary of being constantly blown around by the waves and the turbulence, trying to face up to failure? Then come. Come to the foot of the cross. Come to the foot of the cross of Christ. Lay all your burdens at his feet. He is gentle and humble in heart. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. Hear him simply ask, as he asked Peter, do you love me? And then answer, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then rest secure in the knowledge that grounded firm and deep in his love, you will indeed find rest for your soul. Amen. Well, it's good that we have, have the opportunity just to quietly reflect on that. Um, for uh, none of us have been perfect successes throughout life. But for some of us, uh, the failure has been a damage that handicaps us. And for others, it's been the opportunity to become stronger. So we'll have some uh, quiet now. I'm going to invite uh, uh, Rachel Guilford up. Uh, Rachel won't be known to many of you. Rachel's a member of a, a church in Aldershot. She's one of our graduates from the Growing Leaders course. She's going to sing to us after we've had a, just a quiet time to uh, reflect on the word from Tim. Um, this is a song which she um, uh, uh, has uh, uh, created herself, both the lyrics and the, um, uh, and the music. It's got some very telling words in it. When I start to fall, it's then I learn to fly. I cannot really live until I've learned to die. 
When I'm hurting, then the healing can begin. When I'm poor, I'm richer than I've ever been. So, a time of quiet now then. Rachel, would you like to come up and uh, take your place? Maybe you could uh, play a little instrumental before um, we have the song so that we can focus on this. The words will be on the screen. For some people, um, failure is something they can uh, talk through with God um, and can come on a one-to-one relationship with him. For other people, it may be something which they keep coming back to and they haven't really had victory. Um, Now, if that's the case, it would be a brave thing. It would be uh, a, um, a sensible thing to ask others to pray for you. So we have um, a team of people, just pairs of people, who will, in confidence, just allow you to um, uh, ask them to pray for you. That's going to be at the rear. That'll be happening both in the uh, quiet instrumental and then when Rachel sings. So let's just um, be quiet now. Just some instrumental. Rachel, thank you. Searching for answers 
continue in prayer and uh, Kathy is going to lead us in our prayers.